I'm Manila Chan. You are tuned into modus operandi. So Finland has joined NATO, expanding the military bloc some 800 miles along Russia's borders. Citing Article 10 of the group's founding treaty of an open door policy, this marks the 11th time since the fall of the Soviet Union back in 1992 that the bloc created to contain it has grown. So who is the real agitator here? We'll discuss it with a geopolitical expert next. All right, let's get into the MO. It's Twitter official. NATO has announced the accession of Finland into the so-called defensive alliance, leaving behind their friend Sweden, who initially was set to join in a two-for-one special. For nearly 75 years, Finland had an image of neutrality following the FCMA Treaty of 1948. That would be, of course, friendship, cooperation, and mutual assistance treaty signed between them and then the Soviet Union that was extended three times. The Finns and Russians signed a new cooperation agreement after the 1992 fall of the Soviet Union. So for the better part of the 20th century, the Russo-Finnish relationship was peaceful. This despite the Finns backtracking on a deal made during the so-called Winter War of 1939-40 to 40, after Finland, in effect, helped the Nazis from 1941 to 1944 by allowing Hitler's troops to transit through Finland. And, of course, some Finns also took up arms against the Soviets, side by side with the Nazis. By 1944, the Soviets beat back the Finnish-supported Nazis, and an armistice was struck between the neighbors. So since 1948, the FCMA treaty, there has been no political or physical fighting between the two. Fast forward now to 2023, despite no hostilities for nearly a century, Russia's Nordic neighbor suddenly felt threatened and joined NATO. So here we are. Joining us to discuss and perhaps explain all of this is professor of political science at the University of Oslo in Norway, geopolitical analyst and author. His latest book is called Russophobia, Propaganda and International Politics. Professor Glenn Deason is with us. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So Finland has just made a successful bid to join NATO. Their accession to the bloc uh, completed April 4th. First, can you tell us why Finland, seemingly out of the blue, wished to join NATO? I mean, were they facing some sort of imminent threat by anyone, specifically Russia, with whom they share this very porous border? Well, I think that uh, obviously a lot of things that changed was uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which spooked many. And uh, uh, and again, the, the media, of course, uh, was also consumed by this. So there's a... Uh, there was a huge and fast push towards uh, joining NATO. And uh, because uh, traditionally Finland has not had the political support for joining uh, NATO among the public. But again, because of the war, uh, the, the sentiment changed uh, quickly. And, um, and uh, I, I would argue that a key problem was that uh, instead of sparking a, reason, a reasonable debate, given that you know, the neighboring country went to war, uh, I think it was more emotions taking over because I haven't seen any sensible debate there about to what extent joining NATO would actually help their security. 
<clears throat> again, it's not just uh, sometimes in security, less is more. In other words, if you bring in, uh, in American weapon systems, for example, or uh, or become part of this huge uh, military alliance, now 31 states and anti-Russian military alliance, is going to uh, cause a, re a, a reaction from Russia. And will this then undermine your security or not? So, so there wasn't really any debate. It's just that we feel greater threat now from Russia, hence let's join NATO. Uh, very little discussion around the pros and cons in terms of their own security. And um, again, I think what's been missing is uh, uh, all this focus now that, you know, there's war in Europe, uh, war with Russia, uh, but no one really has thought much about peace. Uh, in other words, how can we figure out how, how we're all going to live on the same continent? Instead, it's uh, just let's arm ourselves, let's send weapons, let's join NATO. And uh, yeah, last I would also say this also had to, I think there was a deliberate effort of going into this very quickly. Again, no one in Finland are suggesting that Russia might attack them, but because of uh, the huge security concerns now in, in Europe, um, and the sentiments had changed. Uh, there was, uh, I think, there was an interest in the government to move while the public was on their side. Uh, it's no secret that often the political leaders and military leaders would like to be in NATO, and you know, but still, uh, they didn't get the public with them. So I think there's an interest uh, to get inside NATO before the war is over, so uh, so they don't risk losing the public. So just so we're clear, um, there was no imminent threat to them by Russia. And I should note, normally the NATO accession process, historically, it takes years. So why did this one happen so quickly? Well, uh, well, they're considered to be a lot of the accession uh, previously was with countries which used to be part of the Warsaw Pact or actually Soviet Republic, uh, former uh, republics of the Soviet Union. So they have been uh, uh, so it was seen as needing more work. However, if, if both Finland and Sweden have been cooperating with NATO for so long that a lot of the uh, yeah, interoperability has been already aligned. So uh, it, was, it was easier, but also uh, there was a huge interest to have this country join even you know, for, for, long, for a long time now. So, um, but of course, you know, there was an opportunism going on. Uh, there's a war. Uh, now is a good chance to expand the military alliance uh, during conflicts. You know, it's in human nature. People uh, seek internal uh, solidarity in order to face off an external threat. So this is an easy time to, you know, call for uh, expanding uh, the military, expanding military alliances. So I guess uh, yeah, everyone was in a rush to get this done quickly before uh, all the... Uh, before the war might calm down or a peace might uh, emerge. So, so this may be a, a chicken or egg question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is it Russian aggression or posturing of some sort on the global stage that causes these nations to want to join NATO? Or is it the expansion of NATO, some nearly 20 times now, um, 11 just since the fall of the Soviet Union uh, technically collapsing in 1991, that is provocative, thus creating, you know, this um, self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. 
Well, uh, I guess there's many reasons why states would want to join NATO. Uh, one of them is that the United States pays for a lot of the security. So it's uh, it's seen as giving ironclad uh, security guarantees and, uh, well, paying little. So it's usually considered a bit of a pre pro quo in which the United States provides, pays for the security. Meanwhile, the Europeans surrender some of their political independence. So we follow America's leadership and in return, America pays for our security but uh, uh, I would say that whether or not it's Russian aggression or well, well what what causes this I think um, it, it un unavoidably becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy which is why it's a good expression uh, because NATO after the Cold War when it started expanding uh, Russia was very weak at this time so it was considered by many even James Baker pointed this out and Madeleine Albright they both used the word uh, insurance guarantee because in case they would have conflicts with Russia in the future at least you have would have an all-powerful NATO armed to the teeth next to Russia so they wouldn't uh, dare to do anything and uh, of course the problem is uh, if you start to expand the military block pushing the military infrastructure closer and closer to the border uh, Russia will have a reaction this was uh, George Kennan's argument actually in 1998 he was interviewed in the New York Times and he actually warned that uh, if the, now that NATO expands, at some point, Russia will react negatively, like any great power would do if you put military uh, along its borders, much like the U.S. would do if you know Russia placed its military in Mexico. Uh, anyways, his argument was at some point Russia will react negatively. And when this happened, and this is to well, paraphrase him or, or quote him, was... Uh, at this point, the NATO expand, uh, expansionist will, ex well, the, the proponents of NATO expansionism would then argue that this is just the way Russia is. It's aggressive. Good thing that we expanded NATO. So it's um, it's an interesting logic, and this is why also we had this weird relationship with Russia ever since we began expanding NATO. On one hand, it's a deterrent against Russia. At the same time, we're trying to reassure Russia it's not against you, and. Um, and it hasn't really mattered what Russia do, really, because if NATO expands and Russia doesn't object, well, then it's not a threat. And, uh, you know, there's no problem to expand, uh, to expand. But if NATO, sorry, if Russia would object, well, that's a very aggressive thing to do if it starts to resist or fight back. And now we have to expand NATO to contain Russia. So it's a, it's a difficult position we kind of put uh, the Russians in because... Uh, we, we essentially said that NATO is just about democracy and uh, anyone who would, would oppose expanding it would therefore be uh, anti-democratic, would be anti-civilizational. So we essentially told the Russians, we gave them a dilemma, we're going to expand this block up their border, either sit still and do nothing or we will contain you. So, and uh, yeah, so self-fulfilling prophecy, I think this is the yeah, right word to use. As we say in the States, Professor, uh, damned if you do and damned if you don't. All right, coming up next, nukes, Nord Stream, the UN. We'll talk proliferation and investigations when we return with Professor Glenn Deason. Sit tight, the MO will be right back. During the Second World War, in Nazi-occupied Poland, Valinia was a farming region. Today, it's part of Ukraine. 
Between 1943 and 1945, members of the Ukrainian insurgent army led by Stepan Bandera massacred thousands of Poles in Valinia in a diabolical ethnic cleansing process. The murders were particularly horrific and brutal. Villages were burned and property looted. The Valinia massacre is without doubt one of the bloodiest episodes in Polish-Ukrainian history. Why are Ukrainian politicians still reluctant to talk about these events? How do modern-day Ukraine and Poland view this tragedy of the past? And why does the memory of Valinia still divide people? Welcome back to the MO, I'm Manila Chan. So with Finland expanding the NATO footprint around Russia, no doubt NATO weapons will proliferate another 800 miles. Meanwhile, Russia is making moves of its own with tactical nukes moving into Belarus. Professor Glenn Deason, author of the book, Russophobia, Propaganda and International Politics is back with us. So Professor, uh, recently, Vladimir Putin made a deal with neighboring Belarus to build a storage facility for Russia's tactical nukes in exchange uh, for modernizing uh, Belarus's warplanes. Expected completion for this site will be this summer, actually. This will be near the Belarusian western border. The exact location is classified. Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland are very upset by this. They are all NATO countries. But could this latest push to bring in Finland and maybe someday Sweden into the bloc be the impetus as to why Russian tactical nukes are moving into Belarus? Well, it could be. I mean, there was an interview by, with the former Secretary General of NATO, uh, Rasmussen, and he was arguing in the future for a conflict, direct conflict NATO with Russia, the benefit of having Sweden and Finland into NATO is who could put a full blockade on on uh, St. Petersburg and deny them complete access into the Baltic Sea. So uh, obviously uh, this is the problem. We Imagine if it was the other way around, if China, Russia was mounting uh, their military in Mexico uh, or Canada, the United States would, would react and at the end of the day it wouldn't benefit anyone's security. And this is the case here as well. So obviously, I think that the Finland could have something to do with this. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has something to do with it. Um, but overall, I think that uh, for the Russians, they uh, they decided that uh, well, the so-called rules-based international order, where there's one set of rules for the United States and another set of rules for Russia, that it would be no longer acceptable. Because keep in mind that the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the main treaty to address uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, is very specific. The first two articles make it clear uh, that uh, nuclear weapon states are not allowed to place nuclear weapons into non-nuclear weapon states. But as we know, in Europe, uh, the United States has placed its nuclear weapons in Belgium, Germany, Netherlands, Italy and Turkey. So. So NATO, we're in violation of this, both the United States and these five European countries for 
uh, well for hosting the missiles as well. So so this is problematic. Russia's said it uh, many times over. Like you know, NATO should abide by these treaties on non-proliferation, and now we see uh, Russia effectively uh, placing its uh, its own uh, nuclear weapons then in Belarus, and. Um, why again it, it, it can be many aspects anything yeah, from the war to finland to the nato's reluctance to live by the non-proliferation treaty but it could also be the reason why belarus is more open to this now is uh, uh, because this will entail some surrender of sovereignty at some level at least it's because uh, they, they also fear that uh, uh, NATO could have some aggression against Belarus, especially Poland could attack. This is the fear because no one would attack Russia directly. This would be will lead to nuclear war, but attacking Belarus might be, uh, you know, a, a natural middle point or, or a step <coughs> on the escalation ladder. So um, this could be it. But again, I'm speculating. No one in Moscow is uh, telling me who, well, well, what the main motivation is, of course. Now, let's not forget, under U.S. President uh, Donald Trump, he withdrew the U.S. from the INF Treaty as well. So that uh, causes quite a danger for the rest of the world. Uh, switching gears here, Professor, uh, let's talk a little bit about the recent U.N. vote on Nord Stream. The Russian delegation spearheaded a vote at the United Nations to conduct a joint investigation into who was responsible for destroying this multi-billion, multi-multi-billion dollar, multinational project. Only three votes in favor: Russia, China, and Brazil. All the other 12 Security Council members abstained. Russia's UN ambassador Vasily Nabenzia said this ahead of the of the vote. He said, "Quote." Without an objective and transparent international investigation, the truth will not be uncovered as to what happened. So the draft resolution seemed necessary, I would say, given that Russia was barred from conducting their own investigation into the blast of their own pipeline. How do you read this vote and what happened there at the UNSC? Well, it's not that many ways to read it, really. It's... Uh... Uh, the, the West does not want an independent uh, investigation into the attack on Nord Stream. It's, uh, um, I know that uh, Anthony Blinken came out and said, well, the only reason why Russia is doing this is because, uh, uh, is because they want to uh, well, try to incriminate the United States and make it look guilty, but they, they don't have any evidence. But again, this is the whole point. You, you have to have the investigation to have your evidence. And I think it's quite uh, extraordinary that uh, not just the U.S., but all its European partners as well uh, do not really want to know, have an in independent investigation into this. I think this is what they refer to as Stockholm Syndrome, but uh, it is it is quite strange. Uh, um, uh, again, I don't think, uh, because this is so politicized, uh, someone attacked the main, uh, some of the key European energy infrastructure, uh, causing economic devastation to Europe, but also an environmental disaster, and uh, and again, uh, even the United States now said that uh, it's not the Russians who are behind it. They will try to throw the Ukrainians under the bus. But anyways, if if someone has done this, surely this is important enough to to investigate. And uh, and uh, well, I I would agree. I don't think any 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 investigation now either by the NATO side or by the Russian side would be credible. You need to have 
an independent investigation. And keep in mind that uh, early on, Sweden did an investigation. They didn't, they didn't even want to share the results then with Denmark and Germany, which are their NATO allies, and they cited national security. So something obviously has happened here because someone attacked these pipelines, and uh, there's a good chance that this is a NATO country attacking another NATO country. And so you would think an investigation would be of interest. But I think that narrative control now is important. We have to keep NATO solidarity, which means we cannot know uh, who would who did this. Uh, just to quote uh, an article by Washington uh, Post uh, only a few days ago, it said that uh, <clears throat> uh, it, it said uh, well something like uh, yeah, leaders will see no benefits from digging too deeply and finding an uncomfortable answer. Uh, so this is uh, this was this is the sentiment now in NATO. We I think we know who did this, and but we do not want to have it confirmed because then this will be very uncomfortable. It would sow divisions within the military lines, and we can't have divisions now. We have to all you know march in the same tune and uh, stand together against Russia. According to Cy Hirsch's article about how Nord Stream was destroyed. This would have required uh, approval or at least acceptance or understanding by Denmark, given that the blast site was just off the coast of Bornholm Island, which is Danish territory. Not to mention, according to Hirsch's reporting, the bombs were planted during the NATO exercises called Balt Ops. Denmark is a NATO member. Um, up until this point, what was Denmark's relationship with Russia? And now that Denmark has rejected Russia's request to conduct their own investigation, where does that put their future relations? Well, the, the trust is completely gone, obviously. Now, that goes both ways. Obviously, the, Denmark has lost a lot of trust in Russia, but also Russia has lost all trust now in, in Denmark because, uh, again, someone attacked the energy infrastructure built by the Russians and uh, as you said before, I think everyone knows who's done it now. And the Danes are now seen to uh, effectively obstruct any investigation. I mean, uh, you know, this kind of things would usually make you sound like a conspiracy theorist. But, but there are no other explanations uh, at this point anymore. So, um, uh, so I think uh, this is just going to continue to damage the relationship uh, between yeah, Denmark and uh, Russia, obviously. But also, I think over over long term, I think this will also cause some divisions within within the ranks of NATO because, as I mentioned before, at the moment, um, yeah, we don't want to find out who who actually attacked us because you know we're afraid that this could create divisions. But this is only because we need to have solidarity now because we're in de facto war against with Russia. Now, once this uh, war comes to an end. Uh, there's more chance that we're going to start looking around at uh, you know who who attacked us because for for Germany this is quite uh, devastating. They are the leading economy in Europe. They're the locomotive driving Europe forward, and a lot of their industries are quite energy intensive, and all of these industries are now faltering. And uh, again, its industries can't be competitive anymore, not with the expensive energy has to buy from the United States. So uh, so yeah the the main driving force of the European economy has now well gone off the rails and and uh, is taking the rest of Europe with it. So once once everything starts going wrong with the economy and when the war is over, I think we're going to start to look among each other for whom to blame. Uh, 
So at least that's my prediction. Russia, China, Brazil, the yes votes at the UNSC, all members of BRICS. Is there any coincidence there? No, no, not really. They are, well, they're aligning their economies more and more and also having more security or military cooperation. And at the same time, we see that the BRICS country are harmonizing their, uh, their, their, their policies and political statements to a greater degree. So again, they're BRICS countries. They're also members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, not Brazil, of course. Um, yeah, but it, it shouldn't be a surprise. But I'm more, I'm more surprised, to be honest, about the, the, the solidarity uh, with, with, within the West at the moment, because I think for countries on the outside, uh, it's not just the BRICS country. I think the rest of the world's looking at this and thinking, well, what other explanation could there be? Keep in mind that the United States, they used to sanction the European allies who participated in building the Nord Stream project. Uh, you had the reports like from Rand Corporation, which is a U.S. think tank, uh, you know, ordered in 2019 by the U.S. Army. And it, it one of the uh, steps to weakening Russia was, the first step was to stop Nord Stream 2. You had the leading U.S. politicians from Mike Pompeo, Tom Cotton, you know, Ted Cruz, uh, all of them saying, even Jake Sullivan, all saying we have to stop Nord Stream 2. And this was before Russia invaded. We had Joe Biden say we're going to bring it to an end. Uh, Victoria Nuland before before and after the attack saying that this was a good thing, that this was uh, blown up. Uh, so it's just been over and over again. Um, we, we, we see that, well, the United States have been threatening to destroy it. And then, of course, after they destroyed it, we had people like Anthony Blinken, you know, in no uncertain term, arguing that the destruction of Nord Stream was a tremendous opportunity. So, and in Europe, we're not even allowed to say that the U.S. will benefit from its destruction, even as, uh, you know, the, they're celebrating in Washington. We, we can't even say it because this will be disinformation. Instead, we're claiming, you know, this is the Russian playbook. And... Uh, and this is, uh, yeah, this is the situation uh, we're at. So I think when the rest of the world looks at this, what, what, what other conclusion can they reach? Um, again, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, I, I think uh, the, the unity now within, uh, we, we within the BRICS countries is quite, is quite uh, natural. Not only because they're aligning their policies, but also if you're standing on the outside looking in, I'm not sure how else. You could you you could interpret this. Indeed, I would just add one last thing. To some extent, the United States have already uh, admitted to some extent that it's been lying because uh, after Seymour Hersh published this story in which he claimed the United States, with the support of Norway, attacked the pipeline, uh, the United States responded by well, first of all, saying that there was a pro-Ukrainian uh, group behind it, uh, which doesn't make any sense at all, but. Uh, also, Washington said that its intelligence community knew that it wasn't Russia, but they wanted to protect the Ukrainians. So this is quite fascinating because now uh, Washington's uh, admitting that it was lying when it was uh, saying that it was probably Russia, pointing towards Russia, and even risking war with Russia. So this is lying to its public and the wider world. Uh, so I'm, I'm not I'm not surprised by the fact that the BRICS countries are coming together because. Uh, there simply isn't any other explanation anymore than the United States uh, attacked the European energy infrastructure. So uh, I, I see this uh, alignment as being quite natural.
Professor Glenn Deason at the University of Oslo in Norway. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. All right, that is going to do it for this episode of Modus Operandi, the show that digs deep into foreign policy and current affairs. I'm your host, Manila Chan. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next time to figure out the MO.